Welcome to another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church. Thank you very much. You can be seated. Oh, it's good to be here with you in Harvey Bay. I've never been here in my life, and I'm so glad you're the first group of people I met here because you guys are awesome. Awesome. If you're the type that likes to follow along in an actual Bible, 1 John chapter 3, um, we're going to get there in a second. Um, for those of you who don't know me, which would be all, most of you, um, this is all I do for a living. I travel around and speak. I've been had the privilege of being mentored by a pastor who just happens to have his rabbi training as well. Um, he's in the Assemblies of God in America, and, and he just happens to have his rabbi training as well. And so for the last 15 years, he's been mentoring me. So all my stuff comes from that bent a bit. I also have a master's degree in clinical psychology, so I am qualified to sort your head out. So be careful what you say to me, because I could see through all that stuff. See, uh, On your way, uh, afterwards tonight, on, on your way out, there is a, a resource table at the back. If you walk to the back and you can't find it, just seek medical help. It's taking about half the room back there. If, if you look at that resource table and you say, shame, flip, why would you carry all this around with you? The reason is, is because we make a lot of money from it, okay? And the reason we do that is because we live with a conviction that we're not simply called to just go to heaven when we die, although we embrace that. that but but we're, we're called to do something more profound than wait to go to heaven. We're called to say yes every day to the infinite possibilities that God has for our life, and namely by bringing heaven to every place we see hell here. And so 100% of, of our profit that we make from that, um, we use to do justice in the world. So we have three orphanages in China that look after mentally handicapped kids, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking. Um, and so and that, that's actually now a officially recognized by the Department of Justice in Cape Town as a viable diversion option to Polesmore Prison, all right? And so, and so we're, we're, we're doing, we're, we're trying to do good, in other words. We're trying to make other people's lives better. I mean, obviously, we never want to create a culture where all our Christianity is is waiting to go to heaven because that would be uncompelling and boring, um, unless you're 107. If you're 107, you can wait to go to heaven when you die because it's coming. But if, but if... <laughs> But if you're not 107, that means you woke up today with infinite possibilities that God could have um, for your life. And so we want to we say yes to that. And so what I want to do tonight, this is my first time in this church. And so what, what, anytime I'm preaching someplace for the first time, uh, this is, um, I, I, you know, in terms of Australia, this is, I'm going into my 15th year. Of, of being around the place and people, I, I, I haven't been to a place yet that didn't ask me back. And so you don't, you, you don't gain that kind of, uh, of traction being stupid. And so, uh, and so, and one of the things I've learned is, is that when you're in a place for the first time, it's good to introduce yourself a bit. It's good to find common ground. Now, with a church, that's easy because, like, Jesus is our common ground. You sort of go with that. So, so my first time in a place, I try to stick with things like Jesus, the cross, forgiveness, love, things like this. And then later on, we'll move into to, to other topics that are really just commentary on those things. And so, uh, so tonight, I want to I talk to you about, I want to, uh, let me say it this way, I want to bring some language that John brought to the first century church to, in an attempt to challenge the church to realign itself around the most important thing. Like the, 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 the biggest problem that we can face as a church is not overt sinful things. Those things aren't really that tempting and they're not, they're, they're not that deceptive. What's deceptive is more distractions. And so, and so I, I want to talk to you uh, about this by looking at 1 John chapter 3. Now because it's 1 John chapter 3, that means there's two chapters before it that I need to set up, all right? So, so let me just set up the context because it's inappropriate to just read something out of the middle of a book, all right? So let me see if I can set this up. So John is a pastor who's writing back into the first century church. He's writing this to believers, all right? He's not, in, in, this, in this letter, he's not trying to convert anybody. He's, he's talking about what does it mean to be a, what, what, first, what did the risen Christ mean to the world? And secondly, what does that mean for our behavior? He spends about 20 verses talking about what the risen Christ meant for the world. And then he spends about five chapters talking about what that should mean for how we treat our world, right? And so, and so let me see if I can explain it this way. Um, every pastor I've ever met in my life started in ministry 
wanting to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. That's how it all starts. When people want to go into ministry, they want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. But then once they start pastoring, part of their week is not spent doing that. So, so once you start pastoring, 25% of your week is spent being a bad real estate agent, right? You're dealing with buildings and parking and codes and government things and mortgage banking and, and things breaking and leafs, roofs leaking and all kinds of things like that, right? And so you just want to lead more people faith that Jesus don't make the world a better place, but you spend 25% of your week doing that. Then you spend another 25% of your week being a bad counselor, where, where people come to you every single week, and they have the same exact issue, and you go, stop it and do something different, and they go, okay, and then they change nothing, and then they come back, and they go, and you go, stop it, do something different, and then they change nothing, and then they come back, and they go, stop it, and then they do nothing. Anyway, and so you just want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place, but you're spending 25% of your week being a bad counselor, another 25% of your week being a bad real estate agent. Then we spend another 25% of our week being a bad theological referee, because I know this is going to surprise you, because this would never be true here. I can just feel it. I can feel that this would ever be true here. There are some people who would rather argue about petty verses in Leviticus than feed the hungry, right? And here's the thing about those people. Those people think we care about that stuff. Let me let you in on something. We do not, right? If you would rather argue about an obscure verse in Leviticus than feed the hungry in this world, let me just speak for everybody. You're flipping annoying, okay? So here's the thing, right? So here's the thing, right? So so we just want to leave more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place, but we spend a lot of our week doing other things. Could you imagine how hard it would have been to be a pastor in the first century? First of all, it was illegal. If you got caught, you were killed on an execution stake. So when people, people tickle me sometimes, they say, Shane, we need to build a first century church. Okay. But here's the thing. First of all, the first century church, it was illegal. Second of all, and this should be obvious, there was no Bible. The Bible was put together in the mid-300s. It wasn't written yet. That, that should be obvious. Can you imagine how hard it would be to be a pastor in a place where it was illegal and there was no book? How did you know? What, what do you do, you know? And I know this is going to surprise you, but here's, here's the context of this book. By the, first, by the end of the first century... The church of Jesus Christ had started to divide over, wait for it, here's the reason why, doctrinal debate. Right? You can't, we would never do that. <laughs> we would never refuse fellowship with someone because we disagreed about the Bible. Anyway. So there were three big debates in, in, in John's day, three huge ones. And these are going to sound crazy, but this is, what, this is the truth. The first debate was, was whether or not Jesus actually had skin on, right? And so there was a group of people who said that Jesus absolutely had skin on. He was a flesh and blood person. There was another group of people who said, no, that's impossible because he rose from the dead, and, and real flesh and blood doesn't rise from the dead, and so he must have been a 33-year spiritual apparition. So the, the group that said he had skin on said, no, we ate with him, and the fish didn't fall through. The, the, group, the group that said that he didn't said he didn't. So you got group A saying he had skin on. You got group B saying he didn't. The poor pastor's just thinking, I want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world better. The, the second big debate was did the cross work for everybody or just for Jews? So that was the second big debate. So, so, so group A said, no, the cross worked for the whole world. Group B said, no, it only worked for us because our God's the God of the Jews and not for other tribes, right? And the, whole po the poor pastor's just thinking, oh, my goodness, I just want to lead more people to faith in Jesus. The third big debate was, what must you do to inherit eternal life? And so the, group A was saying it's faith in Christ alone, and group B was saying uh, it's faith in Christ, but then you got to do the feast and do certain things and become like a certain group of people, right? So you got group A saying he had flesh on, you got group B saying he didn't. You got group A saying the cross worked great, you got group B saying, no, nah, not so good. You got, group, you got group A saying, you know what, it's faith in Christ alone, you got group B saying, no, nah, it's faith in Christ, but it's also this, this, this. And then in the middle of all this argument, you'd have certain people showing up going, hey, I went to junior high with Peter's second cousin, Bill, and I asked Bill what Jesus would say about this, and Bill's pretty sure Jesus would have said this. 
And then you got another guy going, well, I went to senior high with Jesus' stepbrother, James. I was asking James about this. James is pretty sure about this. And here's the problem. There wasn't a, 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 an MP3 file folder full of recordings of what Jesus said. And the poor pastor's just thinking, I want to have more, I want to leave more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. It's in that context that John writes a letter to realign the church around what's the most important thing. And if you read the book of 1 John from the beginning, first he's talking entirely to believers. There's no, there's nothing in there that's like, okay, I need to convert some people here. So he, he goes, he goes, first of all, everything you saw in Jesus Christ was true since the beginning of time. Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality about God. He simply showed you what God was always like from the beginning. That's one. Two, when he forgives sins, he forgives all sins everywhere, not just yours, the sins of the whole flipping world, and you're just a part of it. Three, to believe that he came in flesh is the key to being a true prophet. That's really all the theology in 1 John. Then he ends all of his theological arguments, and he essentially he says this. What difference, with that established, what difference does it make if you're the rightest church in Harvey Bay, if you're not known for being the most loving group of people in Harvey Bay? What difference does it make if you're the rightest group of people about God, if no one's listening to you because you're being ugly about it? What difference does it make if what you're saying is technically correct, if it makes Jesus less attractive? What difference does it make if you know all the mysteries that you can know about God, if all that stuff doesn't motivate you to be nicer to people in your community? What difference does that make? Now, it's in that context that we read this. This is 1 John chapter 3. <clears throat> Here it comes. Uh, it's going to be one before that, man. That's verse 14. It starts at verse 11. Here we go. Here we go. But this is the message we heard. Uh, sorry, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised by brothers and sisters. I love that. If the world hates you. Now watch this. Watch this verse 14. Watch this. We know that we have passed from death to life because we get all of our doctrines straight. <laughs> nope. We know we've passed from death to life because there's no error in our doctrinal creed. Nope. We know we've passed from death to life because we said all of our sins to a priest. Nope. We know we passed from death to life because we prayed a magic prayer. Nope. We know we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now, this has enormous implications for what the church should look like in the first century and today. Let's unpack this a little bit. Next slide. So when you love, you're experiencing some version of eternal life now. To John, eternal life doesn't start when you die. Eternal life starts now and just carries on. And evidently, when you love, you're experiencing some version of what that looks like now. And conversely, when you hate, you're experiencing some version of death, darkness, and decrease now. Let, let, let's say this an, another way. For us, life and death are static images. You live, you die. That's all you got. For Western people, life and death are static images, not to first century Jews. To first century Jews, life and death were dynamic dimensions you moved in and out of. To be said to be living in life, light, and increase was presented as a choice to live in God's ways. Life, death. Choose life that you might live. That's obviously not literal life and literal death. No one chooses when they're born and when they die. Life, death. Choose life that you might live. Light, dark. Choose to be in the light as he is in the light. Light and life were considered uh, choices that you made to live in God's ways. And if you lived in that way, you were in life, light, and increase. And if you chose to resist that and your life was going into disrepair, that was death, darkness, and decrease. So for us, it's static images. For John, life and death were realms you move in and out of. Let's say it this way. Next slide. For us, the question is how to have life after death. We're consumed with that. What happens after you die? But that really wasn't a question in the first century. Let, let me prove it, okay? If I died tonight and you came to my funeral on Monday and then I showed up here the next Sunday, I would ruin your service. 
If I walked in and they were like, oh, my Lord, Shane Willard's back. Get the man a mic. Sermon is canceled. We're having a Q&A with a guy just came back from the dead. What would be the first question? Well, it wouldn't even be, are you okay? It would be, tell us what happened after you. I'd, I would make $100 million writing that book, right? No, no problem at all. Jesus died and rose from the dead and comes back. And how much does he talk about heaven? None. How much does he talk about hell? None. I find that fascinating. What I find more fascinating is no one asked him. Jesus comes back from the dead and they're like, ha! Ah! You're back. What was, what was heaven like? What was hell like? We heard you preach there. How'd your altar call go? Did you clean out hell, you rascal, you? You know, when you rose from the dead, tombs everywhere emptied. What was that all about? All these amazing questions they could have asked him, not one, not one person asked him. What they did is they said, oh, you're back. Great. Are we going to take over Rome now? Is it now the kingdom is coming to the earth? See, for us, our primary concern is what happens after we die. John is not addressing that in this book. John is answering the question how to have life before you die. On your way to death, what does true life look like? What does eternal look life look like that starts right here? The, the word he uses is metababakamen, which is a long Greek word that just means to change bases. Essentially, he says, if you're finding your life on the basis of death and you want to know your move to the basis of life, your first decision, it's not your only decision, one of your first decisions after choosing to have faith in Jesus is to be a person of love. Essentially, he's making a case that all true believers in Jesus, one of the initial manifestations of what that belief should look like is that person is, is intentionally a person of loving kindness towards their brothers and sisters. Now, now that's obvious, right? Like, if I was to say, listen, I don't even know you, but all of us could do to be more loving, right? No one's going to disagree with that. No one's going to go, no, we need to be more hateful. No, no one would say that, right? But the problem with big statements like that is we need to be a community of love, right? The problem with that is, is that we all would agree, but when we lack language for what that actually looks like and means, it can be a problem, all right? So let's, let's dig into that a little bit. Next slide. So John says one entry point into life is to commit to loving each other. Obvious. So let's talk about what that could mean. Central to Christianity is seeing all of life as a gift. Everything's free. And I'm talking about big things. Things like life. Free. None of us deserve it. None of us introduced our parents. None of us gave them amorous feelings for each other. None of us, and because of where I'm standing, I'll say it this way. None of us chose or deserve where we were born. Listen. You were born in one of the top five greatest nations on this planet. A nation with motor cars and paved roads and stores that prepackage food for you. Clean water in your tap. Machines that do washing. Other machines that do drying. World-class health care right down the road that's largely free. Laws that protect the weak against the strong. You live in Australia, man. Like, when I hear Australians complain about Australia, I'm like, Flip, man, where are you going to go? <laughs> like, honestly, if you can't make it here, hopeless. Life is free. You could have been born in South Sudan. In Uganda, under a civil war, you could, have been, you could have been born somewhere in the Middle East in a mountain somewhere and been tortured. You, could, you, could have, you, you, you were born in Australia. If God never did nothing else for any of us, that's called even. It's free. Breath. Breath's free. Everybody take a deep breath. And then out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's free. For now. At some point, they'll tax that. Right now, free. And you know what? We all take that for granted because we do it without thinking. The only people who don't take breath for granted is asthmatics, people with pneumonia, emphysema, or someone who's acutely choking. If, 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 you, if you quickly and suddenly lose your ability to breathe, you're, how necessary it is becomes, that changes everything. I, I, I choked one time in my whole life. I was, um, I was meeting a pastor in Chermside. This was a long time ago. 
he, uh, he said, I'd like to book you at my church, but I'd like to meet you first. I was like, perfect. I'll come have dinner. He said, that's perfect. So I drove, and I, you know, I'm worried about all kinds of things. My first impression, I want to I be articulate. I want to be kind. You know, I, I just, you want to make a good first impression. So he ordered an entree, and, and to, without getting into the details of it, a piece of calamari went into my windpipe. And I mean, in time, got stuck there. Uh, I could not breathe. It acutely cut all my breath off. Well, now suddenly everything changes. I don't care what I look like to him. I don't care about my first impression. I don't care about, I care about, I don't care about money. I'd have written a check for everything I owned in the whole world for one more breath. Why? Because I suddenly quit taking it for granted. When you're choking, all kinds of things change. Your priorities, everything. I, I was suddenly okay with things I would normally never be okay with. Like an Asian man I've never met sticking his fingers in my mouth. I, 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 Normally not okay with that. But what happened is, is this Asian dude I've never met come running out of the kitchen. He put me in a reverse headlock and took his fingers and shoved it down my throat. And I loved it. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Get you some of that, yeah. Yeah. Normally not okay. But that night I loved it. I loved it. Breast free. Forgiveness is free. Like none of us, this is our story. You know what? God wasn't going to forgive me, but then I prayed a magic prayer at the right moment, at the right time, in the right place, in the right posture, and God was like, you know what? I wasn't going to forgive you, but now I will. <laughs> Come on, no way. Free. Resurrection's free, and we take that for granted. It's going on everywhere. If you just take a second look at the back of your hand, and I want you to become aware that the skin on the back of your hand is 28 days old. It's brand new. Brand new, 28 days ago, that skin wasn't there, but now it's there. You don't really notice. But, but we do take it for granted, but we also know it. That's why in the winter, when we wake up, we have dandruff on our pillowcase. No one panics. No one looks at the skin and goes, oh, no. I'm losing skin at an alarming rate. This rate, I'll be dead in 28 days. No, we just, we just know it's sort of. It's, it's sort of happening. Uh, uh, um, um, eternal life's free. Salvation's free. All these things are free. All free gifts, which should lead us to certain conclusions. Next slide. So if life's a gift, then certain things don't belong in the light. If, if all life's a gift, greed surely can't belong. It's all a gift. It's light and life is based on generosity. So if it's based on generosity, how can greed belong? Hoarding doesn't belong. Entitlement. Murder. Treating others as if they're below, below you. Complaining doesn't belong in the light. Like if, if you hand somebody a Christmas gift, because Christmas is not too far away. So if, if you hand someone a Christmas gift and they open that gift and their response is, really? <laughs> is that your best effort? Right? If someone responds like that, is the problem with the gift giver or the gift receiver? It's always the gift receiver. But how many of us have done that? How many of us, God has given us this life? Hey, I'm going to give you life and breath and resurrection and the promise of eternal life and free forgiveness by grace through faith alone. I'm gonna, and I'm going to let you be born in Australia, one of the top five greatest nations on earth. I'm going to let you be born in a land with laws that protect the weak against the strong. I'm going to let you be born in a place where you can dial triple O and an ambulance will come to I'm gonna let you. I'm going to let you be born in one of the most poshest places on planet earth. And we still go, what? I'd like somebody else's life. That's crazy stuff. Doesn't belong. Let me illustrate. I used to be on staff at a mega church, a church of 4,000 people. And uh, this was years ago now. But one of my, one of my jobs uh, when I was on staff at this church was um, I, was the, I was in charge of all the single adults in the whole church. So all, all the, and we, man, we built something like, like we were on a Monday night. And on Monday night with single adults only, we were up around 280 people. Um, it was just really, really fun. I, I had a blast. But I, I loved almost all of it, except for the fact that single adults are notorious for wanting something they don't have, namely a spouse. And so, and so half my week was spent hearing this. Shane, I just want to be married. I want to be married. Shane, I want to be married. Shane, I want to be married. Shane, I want to... Shane, pray for me to be married. Shane, I want to be married. Shane, I want to be married. Shane, I want to be married. I'm thinking... No, you don't. <laughs> listen, if you're single, I want you to listen to me. I'll be as blunt as I can. 
If you are having trouble coping with the stress of being single, you don't have a prayer on earth coping with the stress of being married. Right? Like, like a, single, a, a single adult's prayer tickles me. It, it goes something like this. <clears throat> Dear blonde-haired, blue-eyed, English-speaking Jesus. <laughs> Shane here. I, I'm 26. I'm able-bodied, and I'm single. Let, let me tell you about my life, Lord. Um, that means I get to do what I want to do <laughs> when I want to do it. I don't have to run it by anybody. Nor do I have to feel guilty about doing what I want to do when I want to do it. And most importantly, Lord Jesus, no one is spending my money other than me. <clears throat> but despite the fact that I know that seems awesome, I'm still stressed. So I'm asking you, Lord, would you entrust me with one of your beloved daughters in order to make my life harder? See, my other job at the church was I was the, I was the church staff psychotherapist that because I had my credentials in that. So I had to do all the counseling for the whole church, which is largely marriage counseling. And so, and so half my week I was spending hearing this, Shane, I want to be married. I want to be married. I want to be married. Shane, I want to be married. Shane, I want to be married. Shane, I want to be married. But then the other half of my week I was hearing this, Shane, I want to be single. I want to be single. I want to be single. The married people wanted to be single. The single people wanted to be married. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with you. I could just hook y'all up. I don't know what to do. And no one wanted to bloom in the field God planted them in. Look, if you're married, make it the best marriage in the room. What other hope do you have? Pray for a comet to come to earth to bring you sweet relief from them? And if you're single, be the best single person in the room. Listen. There's nothing attractive about being focused on what you do not have. The most attractive single adults in the whole world are the ones waking up every day saying yes to the infinite possibilities God has for their life. They put the throttle all the way to the ground saying yes. Then one day they might wake up and realize somebody's doing it with them. That's attractive. Listen, if I could talk to you single adults for a second. <clears throat> Everything that you need to do everything God's called you to do is in your field right now. That's one. Two, it is unattractive to look desperate and compromise a whole lot just to not be single. That's unattractive and unwise. That's number two. Number three, you do not need to find the one. That's dumb. You need to become the one that the one you're looking for is looking for. And when you become the right person, the right person will find you. Four, put your list away. <clears throat> it's embarrassing. This guy, this was a while back now, this guy said, Pastor Shane, I'm believing God for a spouse. I'm believing God for a spouse. I've got my list. I've got my list. I'm believing God for a spouse. Have you seen these lists? I said, let me see your list. I am positive this woman does not exist. She was blonde for the sake of appropriateness, curvy. She was dependable, faithful, successful. She had money, ambition, and she was emotionally low maintenance. All-in-one power pack package. I said to him, I said, mate. That tells you where he lived. I said, I said, mate, this girl's a 10. 
He said, of course she's a 10, Pastor Shane. When you believe God, you believe God for a 10. We serve the God of more than enough, the God of the possible. With our God, all things are possible. When you believe God, you believe God for a 10, Pastor Shane. I said, but bro, you're a four. Like on your best day, you're a four. Girls like this do not marry people like you. Girls like this marry brain surgeons. The last thing you need is for God to bring a woman like that into your life. She wouldn't give you the time of day. What you need is to become a seven yourself, lower your standards 30%, and something might happen. Here's the thing, right? Become the one. Don't look for the one. And listen, one more thing on this. I got off on a tangent because you guys are laughing so hard. <laughs> but here's the thing. One more thing to single adults. You can take it. You can leave it. It won't change my life at all. But you married people better say amen to this because I'm right. <laughs> listen. Never, ever. If you're single, listen to me. Never, ever, 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 ever. Can I be clearer? Ever ask someone to change while you're dating them. You're already getting their best behavior. <laughs> Dating is someone's sincerest attempt to impress you. If their sincerest attempt to impress you fails to impress you, leave. When you're dating, pick the thing about them that annoys you the most. Multiply it by five. Add some occasional horrendous smells under the covers, and you've got marriage. If you still love them, you might have found the one. And all the married people said... Perhaps we should move on. The point is, is since we receive what we don't deserve, a gift, the natural outworking of that, should we should, do, we should treat others the same. Which leads me to this question. Do we treat people as they are worth or as they deserve? Jesus said, if you want to know what God's like, look at flowers and birds. They do nothing to deserve it, but God feeds them and clothes them, not because they deserve it, but because they're worth it. How much more worth are you to God than that? And in other words, to reflect God to our community, to connect ourselves to God and then want to present that to our community. Kingdom people, ch the church of Jesus Christ should be known as the group of people who always affirm what someone's worth instead of announcing what they deserve. Do we treat people as they deserve or as they are worth? Let me go back to marriage for a second, okay? I, whoever has the best marriage in the room, I don't know anything about you, but I do know this. Whoever has the best marriage in the room, let me tell you this about them. They've learned to treat each other as their worth and not as they deserve. You don't love your wife because she deserves it. There'll be days she will. Other days, not so much. It's called life. You love your wife because she's worth it. You don't respect your husband because he deserves it. There'll be days he will. There'll be days your husband will amaze you with his superior intellect and problem-solving ability. Other days, he's going to be a flippin' idiot. That's called life. You don't respect your husband because he deserves it. You respect your husband because he's worth it to you. Kingdom people are people of love. What does that mean? It means we've mastered the art of treating people as they are worth and never as they deserve. You can always find a Bible verse that says this is what someone deserves. And if you use it statically, you can ruin the Bible. Because the whole story of the Bible is, yes, you deserve something, but we serve a God who doesn't treat people as they deserve. We serve a God who treats people how they're worth. It's called love. And watch, watch this. This is the next verse. This is, he just keeps, keeps on. Watch this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You got what you didn't deserve. Voila. Treat them the same. Then watch his specific application. In other words, if you want to know what this really looks like, watch this. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? In other words, if you see a need and you know you can meet the need 
And then you purposely do nothing about the need. And you think God lives in that how? I'd love to hear your theology on that. But Shane, I believe in Jesus. Good for you. If you see a need and you know you can meet the need and then you can possibly do nothing about it, how has your faith in Jesus manifested in anything in this world? And I love it. He leaves it as a question. I love that. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Obvious. Don't just say, bless you, if you can meet the need. Next slide. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Now watch his command. What are we supposed to keep? And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus and to love one another as he commanded us. Now, I don't have time to, to fully break that down, but just trust me. The word keep is not the word obey. Two totally different concepts in Greek. He goes to great lengths earlier to say no one obeys all the commands, and anyone who says that they do it perfectly, they're a liar. But he uses here the word keep. Now, in Greek, the word keep is an ancient castle word. It was called a castle keep. It was where you put the children under attack. It was your place of last stand. We use it the same way today, but we have to think about it. Okay? In hockey or in soccer, you have a goal keeper. Is his job to obey the goal? No, it's to protect it. If you have a, a, a two-year-old and something happened, and I just happen to be standing there, and you say, Shane, 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 Keep her for a second. I'll be right back. Does that mean obey the kid? No, it means protect the kid from whatever's going on out there. I'll be right back. To keep something means to protect it. So what does that mean for us? In a time of great doctrinal debate, John essentially says, discuss all the doctrines, fine, but defend love at all costs. At this place and in kingdoms of this Christ, we draw the line. Where do we defend? We defend love at all costs. We can discuss any doctrine you want, but we defend love. We defend love at all costs. Now, there's a line in here that doesn't read well, well in English. It says, if you have material possessions and see a brother or sister need and you have no pity on them, that, that is a weird sentence. The most basic hermeneutic you could ever do is just look at different translations. So let me show you three different ones. Next, next slide. So this is, this is three different translations. The NIV says, have no pity on them. I see it. I know I could do something about it, but I'm going to have no pity. The, I, the NLT says, show no mercy to them. So I see it. I know I could do something. No, show no mercy. ISV says, withhold compassion from them. The ASV says, shut up compassion towards them. But my personal favorite is the King James Version. Shutteth up thou bows on them. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how the English language has changed? In the 1600s, it was a good thing to open your bowel on somebody. It was a... Uh, it was a metaphor for uh, generous, generosity. It, you, you know, it doesn't mean that today. Like, I would like all of you to keep your bowels closed in my general <laughs> direction. But of these, five, of these five translations behind me, the King James Version is actually the most literal in this one case. The NIV looked at it and went, it doesn't mean that today. Um, the KJV was just like, well, that's what it says. We're translating it. Shutteth up thou vows. But because but, but, in the first century, in the first century, the center of your life was not your heart. In the transition between worship and the preaching, Pastor Ross said, I want you to take a second and shut off the noise and open your heart to what God would want to do. Totally appropriate in today's English. You would open, we would say open your heart. In the first century, you would never say that. They, they, the center of life was not the heart. It was the bowel, like because it, 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 their understanding of medicine was so primitive, babies come out of there. And if babies come out of this, then the center of life was the bowel. And so that, that's where life is. Life, so so if, you were if you were the first century and you were dating somebody, and you said to her, sweetie, I just love you with all my heart, she would be like, you creepy weird dude. That is weird. That is just weird. 
But if you were dating somebody in the first century and you went, sweetie, Sweetie, I just want you to know, I love you with all my bow. Well, she would be like, oh, you move my bells too. This is how it was in the first century. Let me show it to you. This is in the original language in the Greek. This is the original language the Bible was written in. Let me show you. The original language says, Kleise tash blakna. Kleise, close, ta, the, shplakna. Now, we would appropriately say, close your heart. Close your mercy, shut off your compassion, shut off your life source. But in the first century, all those ideas were wrapped up in a word, shplakna. Essentially, John says, if you see a need, this is what love is. If you see a need and you know you can meet the need, you don't close your shplakna. You open it. Let's say it this way. Next slide. John's key to entering life is to live life with an open shplakna. Essentially, John's saying this, if you want to really live on your way to heaven, true life that is lived to the fullest on this earth is all about when you see a need and you know you can meet the need, you open your shplakna all over the need. Which leads me to all kinds of questions. Next slide. (laughs) Do you experience God yet leave the same? Like, is your story, you know what, I've tried church, I've tried singing, I've tried listening to preaching, I've tried, you know what, I don't know, it just doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't really work for me. Well, here's the thing, right? Maybe it's not, maybe it's not that you're bad. Maybe it's that you're experiencing those things with a closed black knot instead of an open one. Maybe in a room this size, this would be true of at least one. Maybe you're here, but in your head you're actually there. You're already in a meeting tomorrow. You're already, what, what, what hope? That's, that's not God. That's not, and it's not really you. It's just you're experiencing the same thing everybody else is with a closed heart instead of an open one. What if we opened our shplakna? Let's say it this way. Do we relate to someone who's hard to love? You know that person at work you just wish God would go ahead and take them to heaven? <laughs> what if we opened our shplakna? to them. But the most obvious, the most obvious application for tonight is simply this. Do you see a need and you know you can meet it? Is there a need and you know you can meet the need? Do not be burdened about something you can do nothing about. If everybody only met the needs that they were capable of meeting, we'd be fine. Is there a need and you know you can meet the need? Look, in a room this size, and it's fairly full, it is statistically improbable that there's not at least one that could write a check for six figures to some missions project or some some sort of vision that they have here. It's not like they can't figure out what to do with it. The only cap on vision is resources. What are you going to do with it? You wouldn't even, you could write a check for six figures and you wouldn't even feel it. Your net worth would go from 8.3 million to 8.2. Oh, no. Open your splatna, man. You might be thinking, Shane, you understand. I've got $37. Okay. Listen to me. You have $37. You are not the financial answer to anything. (laughs) You might need another job. So let's take money and set it to the side. Let's pretend money doesn't exist. 
Here's the one thing we all have the same amount of. Time. What are you doing with the time God gave you? Or are you doing nothing with it and then asking him to give you more? Why would he do that? Listen. I'm not here on Sunday, but I'm sure on Sunday there'd be a team of people at that door, a team of people at that door, some people out in the parking lot being friendly to people, letting guests know where to go. I'm sure they could use a few more hands on that team. What's our excuse there? I can't show up 30 minutes early and be kind to people. What? Open your splachna, man. Listen, I don't know who runs the children's church here, but I know I love them. The last thing, the last thing that uh, this room needs is a whole bunch of six-year-olds. Like, you know, mom's talking the whole time. Shut up. Be quiet. And honestly, I'd be the worst children's pastor on earth. No one should be speaking to children less than me. Imagine me, imagine me trying to talk to little kids about God. How awful would that Hi, boys and girls. We're going to talk about splagnas. <laughs> Let me see your fingers. Right? No, no way. No way, right? Right? right. So I'm sure, I'm sure whoever runs the children's church here could use a few more blue card holding hands. What's your excuse? I can't show up early and be kind to children? Open your splachna, man. You might say, Shane, you don't understand, man. You don't understand. I hate children. They're little gross mongrels. They're disgusting. Okay, you're probably not our children's person, but man. <laughs> Listen, whoever's running the youth, let me tell you something about youth. In 20 years, they'll be running the joint, and you'll be complaining about what they're doing. But you have no right to complain about where the next generation takes the world if we're not willing to be a part of molding the values when they're moldable. What are you doing? Two hours, three hours a week to help mold the values of the next generation? Open your splachna, man. Maybe you're a fantastic musician. Let me be clear. I mean, i got to be careful on this one. Listen, if you're not sure whether or not you're good, get it checked out first. By somebody not named Mom. <laughs> but if you're really good, you can't give a few hours a week to help. I mean, really? Open your splachna, man. Say, Shane, you don't know me, man. You don't know me. I'm a jerk. No one would want me. Okay, a couple thoughts on that one. If you know you're a jerk, here's an idea. Stop being a jerk. That's one. But two, even if you're really introverted and, like, hate people, it's, you, you could be a sound guy. There's a wall separating you from everybody. You don't even have to speak to people, man. And listen, you just turn knobs and make the whole thing sound awesome. Come on. And if you're really introverted, we could dress you in all black and put you behind a camera. You could be like the camera ninja. The thing is is that when you live your life looking for needs that you know you can meet and then you open your splachna, that's the key to life. So I want to pray for you now. And um, I hope you had a lot of fun. Based on your reaction, you did. So I hope you were moved and inspired and challenged, entertained. It's one thing to be right. It's a whole other thing to be interesting. So I hope I was interesting. Um, I'd like to give you an authentic invitation back tomorrow night. I've got something very special set aside for us tomorrow night. Um, give us an hour and 15 minutes tomorrow night. Um, it it's, I know it's a work week, and I know I will always honor your time on a work week. And um, I, I, it'll change your life. Listen, if you'll give us an hour and 15 minutes tomorrow night, and it doesn't change your life. I'll personally, out of my own pocket, refund whatever they charge you to come. <laughs> so, well, well, I don't know how this church works. How do I know? So, 
whatever that is. So, so, so it's risk-free, you know, it won't cost you anything. So, let me pray for you. I want us to cancel the white noise of the day and the week. And I want us to be quiet before the Lord. And maybe you could be brave enough underneath your breath to pray a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, would you bring to my mind a need that I know I could meet? Is there anything, is there a need and I know I can do something to meet the need? I'm going to challenge you to send a text or an email or a phone call or something like that, whatever is appropriate for your culture, to your pastor, your, the, the area leaders, however the church is set up. And that text or email or phone call can say something like this, I don't know where exactly I fit, but if you'll help me find my place, I would love to partner with you to meet needs. Um, maybe the Lord's speaking to you about writing a check to missions or making somebody else's life better, whatever the case may be. Just, why don't you pray the second prayer, Lord, bring to my knowledge a need I could meet and give me the courage to act. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never trusted Jesus. And my challenge to you is, is to open your heart, open your shplakna to Jesus, to open your inner self, if you need, if, if you can sort of sense God pulling at your heart right now, that's who I'm, that you're who I'm talking to. I don't want to ever manipulate God. I just want to cooperate with him. And if you need words to say, you could say something like this. Lord Jesus, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that your version of my life story is better than the one I've been writing on my own. And I'm going to trust that. And I'm going to surrender to that. And I'd love for you to teach me how to live. I'd love to say yes. Amen. Would you look this way? Thanks so much for letting me be part of your, your night. I really love that. I really enjoyed my time here. As a communicator, you're a great group of people. Come on back tomorrow night. My brothers and sisters, don't just be right about God. Be the most loving group of people in your community. Treat people as they are worth and never as they deserve. And more than anything, live life every day with a wide open splechna. Grace and peace. Wow. Stay tuned for another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church. 